Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All right, we'll begin in prayer. If you could please stand. Well, that's as we were discussing the screw tape letters and a reminder that we do have an adversary in the spiritual life. Let us pray the prayer to St. Michael. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Michael, the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, Father Paul. Please welcome back Dr. Robert Royal. And boy, after a pitch like that, you don't know what to say. <laughs> I've got to tell you a funny story before I start, because I drove up Wheelie Avenue. Is that how you pronounce it? Here? And uh, I saw what I'm told is called the Northern Virginia Hebrew Congregation. And it reminded me that about, it's got to be more than 10 years ago now, I was there for a Catholic-Jewish dialogue. This is somewhat in line with what uh, Deacon Sabatina was just talking about, about Catholics not knowing the faith and needing to learn more about the faith. And in this very pleasant interchange with um, this Jewish group, and uh, we were talking about different things, I, I warned them, I said to them, you know, as Jews, with your great tradition of learning and, and your concern about, about books, you wouldn't realize how ignorant Catholics are of the most basic things about their faith. And one of the things I pointed out to them was that there's a Professor William, I want to say Kirk, Kirkpatrick, William Kirkpatrick at Boston College, who for a number of years taught in the education school, and he would try and experiment when the students came in and he would ask them, and he would, he would write on the board, and he would say, okay, now, we're going to list the Ten Commandments. What are they? And he wouldn't ask just one person. He would say, you know, as a group, what, what are the Ten Commandments? And these are kids who have been to Catholic school for 11, 12 years, and they walk into Boston College, a, a, a university in the Jesuit tradition, as one says these days, and they couldn't list the Ten Commandments. So I said to the, the female rabbi, I don't know if it's still a female rabbi over there, I said, you know, you... you you guys are just so learned, you know your own tradition. You wouldn't believe that Catholics couldn't even do that, would you? I watched and she was shaking her head. She says, now we've got the same thing in the Jewish tradition. So there's a tremendous sort of gap in religious knowledge that is opened up, not even solely among Catholics who you know, traditionally have been criticized for not reading the Bible and not studying and not being intellectual, but even among Jews. And I think that that tells us something about the importance of the kind of program that the Institute of Catholic Culture is, run, is running and the importance of uh, getting a wide 
and deep understanding of, of, uh, of Catholicism, just to live in the, in the world that we live in these days. So, I'm going to go back to the devil in this session. Uh, just for those who weren't here the last time, the screw tape letters is a series of letters from a senior tempter, screw tape, who occupies, depending on how you think about it, a high or low position in what he calls the lower archy, right? He's a devil. So their low is our high, their high, and everything is upside down naturally. And he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who's a young tempter. He's wet behind the ears. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he's giving him advice. And uh, this is a, a brilliant and quite hilarious presentation of what devils are like. As I mentioned the last time, just again for those of you who, who uh, were not here, the humor is not incidental. First of all, Lewis says, quoting both Luther and Thomas More, two authoritative Christians, that the devil is a proud spirit and cannot bear to be mocked. And, that, and this is an important theological point because we can't ignore the devil naturally, but we can't take him too seriously either because that's one of the ways, either, either extreme is the way that he gets control over us. So the humor is not unimportant. And it also is very clever because, of course, it gives us the other side of the story, right? I mean, it, it's, a, it, it's kind of viewing these things in, the, in a mirror, and it gives Lewis a chance to present things that, if it were presented directly in, in sort of a normal Christian instruction, maybe many people would resist. So that's the brilliance of it, and um, I hope to convey, again, some of that to you um, in this session. So, I'm going to take the remaining letters, basically 16 on. That's the second half. And I want to group them, as I did last time, around three large themes. Um, there's a way in which these 31 letters are like the Divine Comedy. There, there's a kind of a progression, and you'll, I don't want to spoil the ending yet, but there's a kind of a progression in the story. Again, the story is, this is during World War II. The letters were written in 1941. England is under attack by Nazis. The, uh, Ger the German Air Force is dropping bombs on London. V1 and V2 bombs are, bl are blowing things up, and you know, the, the whole city is in chaos. So um, that's the general background, and the discussion goes on between the two devils about tempting a particular young man. So I want to talk about three large themes within that general context. And the first is, last time we spoke about the mystery of good and evil. And this time I'm going to start the session, uh, the, 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 the first large, large theme is the mystery of love. And especially the mystery of love to devils, which is particularly mysterious, I think, as you'll see. And we'll see also how this mystery plays out, of course, between men and women. Then the second thing I want to do is to look at how Lewis uh, speaks about what, what we called last time our deepest desires and how they lead us in a... a uh, a certain direction, our God-given personal characteristics, and how those are worked on by evil spirits. In other words, how does a tempter tempt? And then finally, what I want to do is I want to uh, end, as C.S. Lewis himself does, with a brief presentation of his beatific vision. It's a kind of a reflection of the Divine Comedy, as I said. And by the way, I owe this to the Petrinos who are sitting over here. There's a new edition of my, my book on Dante, which I'd never seen till tonight. I kept calling the publisher and telling them, you know, I've actually taught Dante a couple of times, and my students are, 
you know, they go online and they see that they're used copies for $300, and it's, I mean, it's only a brief paperback, but here it is. That's my one, my one commercial, as we, as we set up. Okay, so let's dive right in. Let's turn to letter 19, and this is a letter in which Screwtape gives what I call the devil's history and the classic theory of love. Now, Screwtape writes to Wormwood, and in this letter, he's trying to defend himself because he slipped in an earlier letter. And he talked about God loving these filthy, disgusting creatures who are both flesh and spirit. And you, you remember that God, in the view of the devils, has demeaned the austere and high dignity of the spirit by creating matter and by creating beings like ourselves. So Screwtape starts out defending himself because his nephew has reported him to the, the, the infernal heresy police. The truth is, he says, I slipped more, by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy, that's God here, really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy. Our father here is Lucifer. When the creation of man was first mooted, and when, even at that stage, the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock and bull story about disinterested love, which he has been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. He implored the enemy to lay his cards on the table and gave him every opportunity. He admitted that he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. The enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview that our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself an infinite distance from the presence with a suddenness which has given rise to the ridiculous enemy's story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. Since then, we have begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if we ever came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense if we could only find out what he is really up to. Hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried, and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this, pursued and accelerated to the very end of time, cannot surely fail to succeed. This is 
Lewis at his best, one, one of his best passages. There's this very clever thing, I don't know if it was clear in the way that I, I read it, but God tells the angels, if you understand what love is, the war will be over and you'll re-enter heaven, right? They think of it, of course, as once they understand what it is, they'll have, you know, the, the H-bomb and they'll be able to come in and take, take over heaven. And it's in this kind of misunderstanding that what begins to emerge is, of course, from a certain standpoint, love makes no sense, whatever this screw tape says, right? Now, um, screw tape's view is that beings have their own very narrow and selfish desires. But something like the idea of the selfish gene, you know, that we sometimes hear about in, in the scientific discussion, that, you know, genes are there to reproduce themselves, and that's why they're, you know, the organisms are in competition. The very notion that different spiritual beings could be united by mutual love, I mean, they're, they're still distinct, right? But they're united by mutual love. As is often said in, in Christian theology, even in heaven, we're, we're not like Buddhists who believe that we shall kind of all disappear back into the great one. Even in heaven at the end of time, all, all saved souls will be distinct, will still be ourselves but we'll also be in communion in, in a special way. So that, you know, there's this very notion that spiritual beings can, that love somehow unites spiritual beings while keeping them separate. It just makes no sense. Um, and it certainly makes no sense to, uh, to screw tape because God continues to love us even when we don't particularly reciprocate to him. Now, I brought up this question of genes, and I want to say that this there's also this altruistic gene that we hear about a, a lot these days. It's started to, be, to come out in scientific uh, discussions, and it's not the same thing either as love. I mean, it's important in our culture to keep these, these different categories distinct. The altruistic gene basically just says that, um, you know, well, we were, we were too narrow in our old Darwinian belief in the, you know, the, the competition between species, survival of the fittest, that sort of thing, that actually there seems to be some survival value in certain types of organisms cooperating with other members of their species. And, and so you see um, that you, you can see how great apes take care of one another and they take care of their children, they fight off predators and whatnot. And so it naturally makes sense from a evolutionary and Darwinistic point of view to say that there's an altruistic element in the genes. But that's not what love is. That's not what's being talked about here. If what you're talking, if, if all of us in this room were to say, we will unite together to protect ourselves against, you know, it doesn't matter what, other people, another tribe, other species, that would be solidarity of a kind, and there might be a certain unity among us, but it's sort of selfishness on a larger scale. It's not love. Not love in the sense that Christianity talks about it. And it's very important, I believe, because I think that there's an attempt to, to try to co-opt our, um, our spiritual impulses, our, our deepest moral commitments, in a kind of a, a scientific explanation, somewhat like what screw, type, screw Tape is trying to present here, right? I mean, it makes sense in a certain scientific way to say that, yes, we, we join together to, to protect one another. But it's, a, it's selfishness writ large. It's, it's group selfishness. It's not love. Okay, something different. Screw tape, you, you notice that there's, there's this abstract theory 
uh, about love in, in Screwtape. That they, he, he's keep, he keeps thinking that he's going to find some sort of physics of love, right? You know, they, they've got researchers out there, and pres presumably in these in these laboratories, you know, attempting all sorts of things, different um, different explanations. Um, there, there has been in Catholic theology in the 20th century uh, what I believe is a very interesting and very important development. And it's a focus on love as the primary factor that is later explained by theology and philosophy. There used to be a time, I think, when, people, when, when even theologians and philosophers tended to regard philosophy and theology as the beginning of something that leads us to understand love at the end. Actually, I, I think it's much more profound to say that it's, it's, the, it's the experience of love that, that gets us started on an attempted explanation that we never really finish, but takes us in fruitful directions as we begin to understand more. Some of you are probably familiar with the book by Hans Urs von Balthasar, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, called Love Alone is Credible. And he, what, what his point is is that is that evangelization proceeds less by argument than it does by the demonstration of charity, where people see charitable human beings. Francis of Assisi would have attracted people w without any theological learning, whatever. He had some. He didn't have a great deal, but he would have attra attracted people uh, despite that fact. And von Balthasar points out, and he doesn't care about the Freudian implications of this, that we all come into the world I think I mentioned the sort of interpersonal nature of, 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 of uh, modern phenomenology and other f philosophies. We all come into the world not as these distinct beings that Screwtape is talking about, but instantly related to one another. Right? That you come into the world, and, and von Balthasar says this explicitly, we come into the world and the first thing we see when we look up out of our crib is our mother's face. We hope, you know, we hope all children have the, or as many as possible have that experience. And what does that tell us about the world? That there are other people in it who care about us and who we're related with and that love spontaneously begins to be generated every time a human being is in, in, in interaction with other human beings. I want to read just a little bit from letter 18, which is prior to the one that I just read in, in uh, 19, because it kind of touches on this, um, on this question in a way that I think draws out um, very powerfully how Lewis uh, understands uh, these matters and, and how he, he anticipated some of the questions that um, come up in the course of um, these sorts of analyses. So this is an excerpt from letter 18. Screw tape again, speaking. The whole philosophy of hell rests on recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing and especially that one self is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other object, objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self does the same. This is indeed the philosophy of hell. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. 
He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love, and this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does and even all he is or claims to be. Thus, he is not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. At the other end of the scale, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. His real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction among humans is not only too apparent from the use he has made of it. Sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent. It might have been merely one more mode in which a stronger self preyed upon a weaker, as it is indeed among the spiders, where the bride captures, um, concludes her nuptials by eating her groom. But in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent on the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse. For the members are more distinct, it also united in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Now, I want to recommend another brilliant book to you by C.S. Lewis, which is called The Four Loves. Some of you have probably uh, read this book. Um, his four loves are, are things that all of us have experienced. So this is not an abstract you know, philosophical treatise on the four loves. And there, it's very simple to, to enumerate them. One is sort of just general affection. Fr second, friendship. Third, eros, you know, er erotic uh, uh, desire. And fourth, charity. And it's, easy to, it's quite easy to understand what he means by, by these terms. I'll just sum them up quickly. Affection is the kind of thing you feel with somebody you work with or somebody you, know, you, you go on a cruise with. It's just you're with a certain person. They're pleasant. Human beings have a kind of natural sociability. And, and so affection in this technical sense of affection springs up. Friendship, of course, is um, related, but it's more particular, right? It's, it's more particular in the sense that it's between particular persons who have a special and, and deeper affection for one another. Friends um, in, in ancient philosophy, even pagan ancient philosophy, used to, a friend is called an, an, another self, that a friend will actually go out of his way uh, and do something for you, even at a certain, uh, a, a certain amount of inconvenience to his or herself, right? So friendship is a deeper type of affection than exists. True friends stick by one another over time. They don't even necessarily have to see one another very much. If you have an old friend you know, from your childhood and you see each other just periodically, it can still remain a friendship in a certain fashion. Right? Um, eros is clearly sexual desire for another and often uh, takes forms that we would say are far distant from love. I, I told you last week I would get to sex and we're going to get to it. In a minute. You, you probably thought that Lewis would, and the devils would get to this earlier on, but there's a reason for, that it hasn't, and I'll explain that. Um, 
So sex is desire, and it also can be a, a kind of desire, as the devil says, to exploit another. But as Plato and the, the entire Christian tradition have, have argued, there's a way in which that particular passionate kind of, of uh, liking for another person can really awake, awaken us to the divine. And we see this you know, going back all the way to the Song of Songs, you know, where, where there, there's a, it's, it's apparently a love poem, but it's also a poem that, that leads us into an understanding that God has an, a, a passionate love for us, and perhaps we should imitate him in having a passionate love back for him. Um, Dante, my, my, uh, one of my, the great passions of my own life, uh, begins his journey toward God when he sees a nine-year-old girl named Beatrice, and he falls in love with her, and this... Both the, the pagan and the, the Christian tradition had this sense that loving another person in this particular way could elevate you, draw you up to see how the, the greatness of what love can be, even in, in this earth. So eros is, is an important element in um, the taxonomy of love. And finally, there's charity, of course, the fourth one. Supernatural, selfless love, a gift from God, and it's in its pure form really quite rare among human beings. And true charity, as we know, is a hard thing to, to achieve, the, the, the total selflessness toward another. So though Lewis and we can distinguish among these four, they, they are not entirely distinct either, if you think about this, right? In marriage, as, as we all know, I, I believe, eros, or being in love, may not continue strong forever. It may, it, it may be there, but it may not be the primary part, as it is uh, early on often. Um, but it always has elements of affection and friendship and charity. And, pre and presumably, as we get older, as we all know from experience, and many of us know from experience in marriage, all those things kind of come together. And, and charity ultimately is going to be the thing that uh, is going to unite all of us to the very end, um, since all loves proceed from God, who is love, as we know. Now... Because love is so pervasive in the universe, God is love and he instills this mysterious love that the devils cannot understand into the universe, it also is the place where the devil can try to tempt the most. Right? Um, Dante, the very last line of Dante's great poem, The Divine Comedy, is the love that moves the sun and all the stars. In other words, quite contrary to modern physics, love moves everything. It created everything, it keeps everything moving, it, ke it, it orders everything in a certain way. And we don't have that, that immediate sense, even Christians don't have that immediate sense anymore, but perhaps we should. You know, it's, it's something that's out there and that takes a, uh, um, it, it takes an effort of vision to see it, but it should be something that we understand is most deeply what reality is about. And as Screwtape himself actually knows, it exists within God that the, tr the doctrine of the Trinity is, means many different things. But one of the most striking things is that love exists within the Trinity itself. That love among persons is the deepest reality in the world. It is the Trinity, the three in one. So the devils, know, they, they know from experience. They know that they can't thwart this thing and they can't understand it. And it's kind of freaking them out. You know, they don't, but what they can do is they can try to pervert it. Um, Lewis takes what I would call a traditional approach to sexuality in a very deep way. 
I, I won't explain to you what I mean by that. Today, um, sexual sins are often regarded as the most grave sins because they seem to you know, cause disasters, suicides, divorces, you know, mental problems. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible, obviously, when, when love is betrayed. Um, and, and lust is different than other, the other sins, the other capital sins like gluttony and greed, which, which they are sometimes classified with, because sometimes sort of pe- people think of these three sorts of pleasures, that gluttony, greed that gives you the power to do certain things that are pleasurable, and sex are three disordered forms of love, right? They're, they're excessive forms of love. Gluttony just means that you take the, the correct uh, appetites that God built into us, and you, you overeat, you, you exaggerate that appetite. Lust, the, the, the same, and greed, the same. But sex is a little bit different. Sex is different because um, it inevitably involves another person, even if only in imagination. And it may seem that this doesn't matter and that, that it may even be a heavier sin because another person is potentially involved or betrayal of another person may be involved or exploitation. But in the Middle Ages, which Lewis knew quite well, by the way, Lewis wrote a beautiful little book, too, called The Discarded Image, which is about the medieval Ptolemaic universe. It's just a wonderful book to read. In the Middle Ages, people thought quite differently. You, 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 you often will hear, and as a Catholic, you should, be, you should be informed enough to refute this, that it's medieval for Catholics to have the view of sexuality that they do. Actually, in the Middle Ages, sex was regarded, rightly or wrongly, mo- mostly regarded as the least of the deadly sins. And here's what I mean by this. It's deadly. You can go to hell for, for uh, adultery. You can go to hell for, for fornication. But if you look in Dante in particular, or in some of the, the other poets or, or the philosophers or the, theologians, they tend to think of this as mistaken, but it at least still images the idea of persons, persons interacting with one another. So Dante's Paolo and Francesca are in the first circle in hell. They're not down at the, the, the lowest. It's not the most serious sin, which is the betrayal of people we owe um, we owe loyalty to. They're in the, 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 least surf, the first circle, and it's kind of understandable why they did what they did. They were in terrible circumstances, but you know what? They're damned. What they did is they gave in to emotion in a way that they shouldn't have. And similarly, if you go to, into Dante's Purgatory, uh, the, the final purging of the, the last sin that's purged before you, enter, you re-enter the earthly paradise is lust. And again, because there's something about it it's interpersonal and therefore has, you know, even if it's perverted, it has some uh, distant resemblance to the love between persons that exist within the Trinity and exist w- with other people on earth. So that's what I mean by the deep traditional view that, that Lewis takes. <coughs> Nevertheless, Lewis makes it clear, and, and this is, I, I think he had to say this in 1941, and it probably bears restatement just as strongly, if not more strongly, 70 years later. He makes it clear that in God's order, sex should only occur within a monogamous marriage or not at all. And marriage is not solely dependent on eros. Now, some of you may want to pay attention here because you may disagree with what I'm about to tell you is in Lewis's view. But let me present this and see if you agree or disagree, okay? Here's screw tape in letter 18. 
The enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma. Either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we have been closing as a way of escape. We have done this through the poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage. That marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent, and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. This idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. Now, here's where he goes even further, and this is where you may agree or disagree with him. I'm quoting Screwtape again. Of course, he's quite aware how passion... Uh, no, I'm sorry, first of all. He's quite aware how passion can be stimulated by tempting um, devils and, and, and the many perverted ways that sexual feelings can be driven. Everything has to be twisted, uh, Screwtape says, before it can be of any use to us. But this is where, um, uh, where, where Lewis says that even when the emotions are straightfor- more straightforward, here's something that many people in the modern world um, either resist or, uh, in the course of, of being married, uh, would like to repudiate. And here's how Lewis puts this through screw tape, naturally. The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. From the true statement that this transcendental relation was intended to produce, and if obediently entered into, to often will produce affection and the family, humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear, and desire, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. The error is easy to produce because being in love does very often in Western Europe, and by extension here in the United States, precede marriages which are made in obedience to the enemy's designs, that is, with the intention of fidelity, fertility, and goodwill. Just as religious emotion very often, but not always, attends conversions, In other words, the humans are to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something the enemy really promises as its result. Two advantages follow. In the first place, humans who have not the gift of continence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. And thanks to us, the idea of marrying with any other motive seems to them low and cynical. Yes, they think that. They regard the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, for the preservation of chastity, and for the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. Don't neglect to make your man think that marriage service is very offensive, by the way. In the second place, any sexual infatuation, whatever, so long as it intends marriage, will be regarded as love. And love will be held to excuse a man from all the guilt and to protect him from all the consequences, if marrying a heathen, a fool, or a wanton. But more of this in my next. Now, in fact, the young man that these devils are you know, consulting about has been, uh, they've been plotting against. Um, instead, he meets a, a good Christian girl. Screw tape, of course, has a visceral reaction. She makes me vomit. We'd have had her to the arena in the old days. That's in 22. 
So with this turn of events, they have to try to indirect methods of corrupting an otherwise good and nourishing relationship. Now, the first and the most common method, naturally, as Screwtape explains, involves the very natures of men and women. Now, uh, if St. Paul cannot get away with husbands, you love your wives, wives obey your husbands, I know I'm entering into very treacherous territory here, but bear with me, it kind of all evens out with the men and women in the end, all right? This is involving, again, I say, the very natures of men and women. Some of you will perhaps have a shock of recognition when you hear this, and others of you may want to resist, but we can, can, we can take that up again in the discussion. Screwtape, who at least on this is probably fairly reliable, and I think this, is, this shows the, the kinds of insights that Lewis has about human beings, and, and they're just really quite, quite uh, brilliant. Screwtape says that women are by nature more inclined of thinking of, of caring about someone, of having affection, of having love for someone, um, as involving active intervention in their lives, concretely doing good for others. And the goal, Screwtape says, is to produce the kind of woman who so-called lives for others. And he adds, you can always tell the others by their haunted expressions. And we all know the kind of person who's so helpful that they're a little too helpful, right? So that's what he says women have a tendency toward. Now, he says, by contrast, men think that you know, they've done all they're supposed to do when they don't make trouble for anybody else, right? And let me confess, I'm not going to have an altar call and ask men to hold up their hands, but it's, you know, this is not a, the, quite the application of the golden rule where you're supposed to do unto others. As you, you know, men more or less instinctively, but you know, if we think about it, of course, we know it's not correct kind of say, well, you know, I, you know, I didn't do anything to the guy. I left him alone. I, you know, I was with him, uh, you know, with a woman. I mean, so uh, Lewis says that, you know, men think that they have, if they have not bothered somebody, that they've done good to them. You know, they, they've not done something wrong, that they, they've, they're, they're blameless. And you know, don't, don't worry, Lewis is, balances this off by saying that this means that women do more good for other people, you know, in a half hour than most men do in a half a month or whatever. So there's this kind of balance that, that works out. Now, um, of course, this sets up the two sexes by nature in a clash. And let me just say, from my own experience of marriage, this this is a thing that recurs on a fairly regular basis in ways that you don't anticipate. You know, he also says, and if you if you don't recognize this, I can't help you. He also says that when people are tired, women tend to talk too much and men tend to clam up. Right? You know, you've been driving for 10 hours, a guy just wants to, oh, I get there, all right, my wife wants to talk, you know. And I'm actually going on vacation tomorrow, and I have to keep reminding my wife, who's not here tonight so I can say this, by the way, that when we get on the plane, we're not on vacation yet. It's when we land at the other side. because <laughs> you know, she wants to... I want to relax till, till we get there. But uh, now look, this is great fun, but I think also uh, very insightful fun. But it, this really begins to go to the heart of what we talk about is unselfishness these days. And you know, none of us except the, the saints really do very well at unselfishness. And even when we're trying to be unselfish, and 
um, and even when we're in love and we're trying to, you know, trying to do good for another person, a lot of times what that is is this kind of self-regarding moral posture. We want to think of ourselves as people who are altruistic and take other people into account. And um, Lewis goes through a number of, of instances. We can't touch on them all here because we don't have a, a lot of time and I want to stay within our limits. But one in particular I, I want to point out to you. He talks about the young man's mother. And he says about her that you know, she's a woman who likes to think she doesn't create problems for any other people. She, you know, she just uh, wants to bear simple things. And screw tape says she is in the all I want state of mind. You know, all I want is an egg properly cooked. But there are no family members or servants or restaurants that can properly cook an egg, you know, and that her delicacy is a kind of a, it's the inverse of gluttony. It's, it's instead of you know, trying to absorb it, you know, it's, it's, I don't really want that much, but of course she does want a small amount exactly the way she wants it. And this is a way that supposed unselfishness can be turned, right, by the, by the demons. Here's another male-female di- difference. Lewis says, or the, the, the tempters say, that the young man can be turned in a different way because young men, maybe men more in general, like to know where the best places are, where the places, places are where you can get the steak that is properly cooked. You know, so you're, you're kind of, your, your identity is tied up with being in the know. And, and this is a thing that Lewis always senses, uh, begins to tread into the infernal realms that wanting to be in the inner circle, wanting to be something special in society is one of our great temptations. Now, all of these different things that I've talked about, the difference between men and women, you know, this alleged unselfishness, the guy who wants to be in the know with the best steakhouse in town, these are all various um, dimensions of trying to, this is the way I would put this, trying to introduce discord where there might even naturally be peace and harmony. That's what devils do. They, they, They try to take even the the, um, the, the simplest interactions in our families and with our friends and take those natural impulses that I've talked about, you know, that all of us feel and, and twist them. That's what, what devils have to do and they have to disguise this because if someone comes to you in need of something, to deny that person baldly, you know, openly, it's, it's just too obvious. You feel bad about yourself, you know, you feel like you ought to do it. So, this is really one of the best ways, according to Lewis, that the, the devils can get us. Not by outright selfishness, but by disguise, by that, by that unreal spirituality that I talked about in the previous session. And in particular, uh, I think Lewis is making a kind of a confession here when he says this. He says that one of the, the worst ways that we are tempted is that we think that our time is our own. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you're a normally sane person, you know there are going to be a lot of demands on your time. And he says that one of the ways that, that we, we can be tempted into peevishness, as he calls it, is by, we think we have time that's our own, and then somebody shows up and it's, you know, a talkative neighbor or somebody who just needs a helping hand for a minute, and you feel like, well, you know, this is supposed to be my day off or, you know, something. As if God gave us time that is ours absolutely. You know, that we have no obligations of uh, having been created and being in relationship with other people in the world. 
ultimately, I mean, in, in, the, in the deepest sense, this discord and this disharmony that should be in a place where there is peace and harmony is what the devil's aim at. And I think that Lewis puts this in a, in a beautiful way. Um, Screwtape goes basically nuts because he finds out that this, the young woman that this, this young man gets involved with is a Christian. He's starting to learn a lot of things from this Christian family. And that the house has a, an amazing harmony sort of unconsciously built up by the people living together and consciously trying to be Christians. He says about this home, it bears a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven. Quote, the regions where there is only life and therefore for all that is not music is silence. That's George MacDonald, by the way, one of the, the great Protestant uh, writers of the 19th century in England. So Screwtape continues, music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, though, no long, though longer ago than humans, reckoning in light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. Music and silence. But all that has been, all that has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end, but I admit we are not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is in progress. Now, many of you might be wondering at this point, what about our religious beliefs? How did the devil seek to distract us from our religious beliefs directly? That hasn't really come up all that much. Um, Lewis talks about people who go church shopping and, and liturgy shopping, you know, and anything that, that gets us away from being humble and, and you know, having to be in, in a group of people that are not particularly like ourselves. Um, but one of the ways that Screwtape says that the tempters like to get at religious believers is, again, perverted religiosity. Yeah. A quote, a um, spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician make better sport in hell than a mere common tyrant or debauchee. And he goes on, and uh, we touched on this last week, one of the clever ways is to talk about, for devils to, to tempt people, is to, to get people to regard their religiosity as Christianity and something else, right? You, that you, you uh, are loyal to Christianity because it helps you with some other thing in your life. And he just says, you know, that, that God will just not be accepted on those terms. He's, he's got a different view of how, how things need to be. It must be him or nothing. And he begins uh, to talk about something that I'm sure many of you have encountered, and it's called um, the historical Jesus. Now, this, this is not to be confused with the legitimate scripture studies that try to go back and look at the history, look at the text, see what we can know about the text, about the context in which Christ lived, and that sort of thing. The historical Jesus is an ideological project. And I don't just mean the people who say that, that there are many people who read the scriptures looking for something in Christ that you know, may be there, but not in the way that they think. And this is the, the way that, that the, uh, the devils in Lewis think it's quite important. And it's important because 
what you do is you get a Christ who is, quote, contrasted with the whole Christian tradition. So you make out of him something uh, that's quite distressing. Uh, here in the United States, I'm sure as you all know, uh, Mr. Jefferson made what he called the Jefferson Bible with a pair of scissors. He took out all the miracles, he took out all the metaphysical principles, and he basically came up with a Christ who was a moralist, you know, after the fashion of 18th, 19th century deism, which is to say a god who, you know, he's up there, created the world like a watchmaker makes a watch, gets it going, gives us our moral principles, and takes it, you know, that's it, and he's done, we're on our own. And so, you know, you go through the Bible with scissors, you come up with Mr. Jefferson's Bible. In the 19th century, says uh, Screwtape, the project changed, and it became sort of the humane Jesus, you know, the one who was liberal in his political views, and again, not very supernatural, you know. Even back in the 1940s, Lewis said that there started to emerge a radical and uh, revolutionary and Marxist Jesus, who kind of then got fed into liberation theology and, you know, uh, a bunch of other movements, and sort of died out as Marxism has uh, died out. Uh, I want to, though, add one of my own categories to this, because I think it's where we are now. And this is the Jesus of niceness. And I'm sure you've all thought about this. It's, just, you know, it's as if our Lord never spoke of sin and punishment, possibility of damnation. I mean, naturally, we all depend on his mercy, but the image of Jesus in a lot of contemporary uh, religious culture is a, a, either as somebody who passes out the goodies, you know, the, 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 the gospel of wealth, or as somebody who doesn't really particularly think sins are all that important. Now, you, to do that, of course, you have to get around the massive fact in the New Testament that Christ died for our sins. And he died pretty horribly. So it tells us something about how serious the sins are. Um, but there's an added dimension to this that I've learned about. And uh, uh, Deacon uh, Sabatino mentioned last week, I also edit an online column. It's just one column every morning, which is called The Catholic Thing. I'll, I'll give you the ad thecatholicthing.org. If you go there, you'll, you'll read just one column. It's not a magazine every morning. And I've learned editing this um, series of writers. We have a rotating series of writers. That people object when we make a strong statement out of the Christian tradition. Even the kind of people who come to our site to read it. And they say, who are you to judge? And I always say, we haven't judged anybody. You know, we, we didn't say so-and-so went to hell or so-and-so is going to hell. We talk about principles. We, we, we mention things that are actually in Scripture and the tradition. But the kind of Jesus that has begun to emerge you know, in the years since Lewis was writing now has become the Jesus who, who is like the ultimate male in what I was just talking you know, about. He doesn't, he doesn't bother anybody. You, know, you, you do your thing and I do my thing. and uh, you know, we're, not suppo we're supposed to be tolerant and o open but we never state the principles that Christ himself stated. Now this may not, you know, it, may, it may sound like, well, in a place like America, we all have to get along, so we have to do this sort of thing. I really think this is the new um, imposition, this new fashion of the kind of, of, of um, misstated historical Jesus that Lewis is talking about. It's the one that we most have to deal with and the one that we most have to push back against in the world. And, uh, Lewis sums all this up by saying that the problem with the historical Jesus is he's not historical. 
It's always some uh, season in the world that tries to make Christ look like us rather than our trying to, to see what he is and adapt ourselves to him. There's more I could say about that, but we're getting to the end of our time. So, look, I want to get to the end. I want to get to letter 31, which is at the, the very end of the, uh, the entire series. And um, what we find there is that the blitz continues to go on. The young man has been, much to his surprise, brave. He's been very f- afraid. Um, but he's managed to acquit himself rather well. He stayed at his post. He actually did maybe a little bit more than he had to do. And um, all the fears that he had, and the devil always plays on fears naturally, all the fears that he had did not lead him to leave his post and to to not do his duty. And he dies in a bomb attack. And this is what Screwtape tells Wormwood. The more one thinks about it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily. No gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentence, no nursing home, no operating theater, no false hopes of life. Sheer, instantaneous liberation. One moment it seemed to be all our world, the scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosive on the lips and in the lungs, the feet burning with weariness, the heart cold with horrors, the brain reeling, the legs aching. Next moment, all this was gone. Gone like a bad dream. Never again to be of any account. Defeated, outmaneuvered fool. Did you mark how naturally, as if he'd been born for it, the earth-born vermin entered the new life? How all his doubts became, in the twinkling of an eye, ridiculous? I know what this creature was saying to itself. Yes, of course. It was always like this. All horrors have followed the same course, getting worse and worse and forcing you into a kind of bottleneck till at the very moment when you thought you must be crushed, behold, you were out of the narrows and all was suddenly well. The extraction hurt more and more and then the tooth was out. The dream became a nightmare and then you woke. You die and die and then you are beyond death. How could I have ever doubted it? As he saw you, he also saw them. I know how it was. You reeled back dizzy and blinded, more hurt by them than he had ever been by bombs. The degradation of it. That this thing of earth and slime could stand upright and converse with spirits before whom you, a spirit, could only cower. Perhaps you had hoped that the awe and strangeness of it would dash his joy. But that is the cursed thing. The gods are strange to mortal eyes, and yet they are not strange. He had no faintest conception till the very hour of how they would look and even doubted their existence. But when he saw them, he knew that he had always known them and realized what part each one of them had played at many an hour in his life. Then, one by one, not who are you, but so it was you all the time. All they were and said at this meeting woke memories. The dim consciousness of friends about him, which had haunted his music, So haunted his solitudes from infancy was now at last explained. That central music in every pure experience, which had always just evaded memory, was now at last recovered. Recognition made him free of their company almost before the limbs of his corpse became quiet. Only you were left outside. He saw not only them, he saw him. This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, could look on 
him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him, is clarity itself, and wears the form of a man. You would like it, if you could, to interpret the patient's prostration in the presence, his self-abhorrence and utter knowledge of his sins. Yes, Worm, what a clearer knowledge even than yours. On the analogy of your own choking and paralyzing sensations when you encounter the deadly air that breathes from the heart of heaven. But it's all nonsense. Pains he may still have to encounter, but they embrace those pains. They would not barter them for any earthly pleasure. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which you could once have tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to be to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved, whom he had loved all his life and whom he had believed to be dead, is alive and even now at the door. He is caught up into that world where pain and pleasure take on transfinite values and all our arithmetic is dismayed. Once more, the inexplicable meets us. Next to the curse of useless Templars like yourself and the great curse upon us is the failure of our intelligence department. If only we could find out what he is really up to. Alas, alas, that knowledge in itself so hateful and mawkish a thing should yet be necessary for power. Sometimes I am almost in despair. All that sustains me is the conviction that our realism, our rejection in the face of all temptations, of all silly nonsense and claptrap, must win in the end. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now after that, there's nothing to be said, I suppose, but just this. I've only been able to give you this, the barest taste of Lewis in this one book, and there's much more awaiting you in the other books as well. And I hope that this brief taste at least will encourage you to go out for yourselves and read into him, because he's not only a great writer, as those, that concluding letter shows, he's also a great Christian soul. And I believe that it's a, it's a great grace from God that we have figures like Chesterton and like C.S. Lewis, a, a brother in the faith, who we can go to for illumination and uh, ultimately for a vision that most of us can't achieve on our own. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Robert. Thank you very much. Why the names Wormwood and Screwtape? Um, I think that uh, Screwtape is Lewis's invention, but Wormwood uh, has actually a biblical connection to the book of the Apocalypse where under the Wormwood star, the uh, apocalypse is going to take place. Interestingly, Wormwood in Russian or Ukrainian is Chernobyl. Chernobyl. So uh, there, there's, a, there's a kind of an apocalyptic element in Wormwood. Hi. I, I think you were talking at one point about the devil trying to figure out God because his God's explanation is so simple. And so we're trying all this, really getting more and more complex theories and really working on the research. And I wondered if that was making some sort of commentary about modern society. And, and Yeah, I, I think that, that what it is, is, is it's really a infernal wheel spinning that can never get anywhere. That since the devils don't understand love, and I, I think this is a brilliant insight of Lewis's, 
that had they understood the originary love of God, they wouldn't have fallen. They would have understood that they could uh, fulfill themselves in relationship with other people. But they don't get that. They, they see themselves as these sort of monads, as later philosophy would talk about it. And, you know, if this monad is going to gain, then that one has to lose. And um, it's, you know, it's a very hardcore, almost Darwinian kind of world. A businessman of my acquaintance once said to me that the devil is smart, but he's not wise. He's not wise, right? He's, he's smart, he's got intelligence, but he's not wise. So, you know, naturally, they, they've got these research centers and they're getting more and more furious. And I didn't read the section, but uh, Screwtape gets so worked up when he's talking about that research, and, you know, they, 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 we're going to crack it someday. He turns into a centipede. <laughs> and he has to dictate the rest of the letter to somebody else. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this, but there's a touring company, it's a company, it's two people, who perform the screw tape letters. My wife and I saw it last year. Some of you may have seen it here in Washington. Unfortunately, this year it's not going to come to the Washington area, but if it, if it does come back, it's beautiful to see because lots of these things become clearer when you see them dramatized. Toward the end, Screwtape uh, makes the point that he must know more about what the Almighty is about. Um, and you mentioned already a moment ago the intelligence of Screwtape and the tempters uh, generally. Can't a case be made that Screwtape knew very well what the Almighty was about, and that's why the tempters make, you know, do such a good job of tempting us? Yeah. Well, he says in a number of places that, you can, that the devils can never quite hear what God is saying to human beings. So they, they may have, a, because they have a lot of experience with us naturally, he, he may have a kind of an indirect intuition, maybe that's what you're trying to get at, but they can't quite, it's not like you know, t two people talking, they can't hear it because somehow it's, it's in a different frequency than, you know, they, they, there's a cloud that surrounds people. You, if you read through the book, you'll see there are a number of funny places where he says, you, know, you, you, can't, you can never quite overhear what they're saying, you know, and, and when you see that cloud, you better be careful because something, you know, something's going on there. So, doesn't anybody want to take on men and women? I mean, geez, I, I'm not inviting trouble, but I'm not just surprised. Could you please say how uh, Thomas More, St. Thomas More, influenced uh, C.S. Lewis? Thomas More was was um, was uh, canonized in 1935, 1933. So. He's an English saint. No doubt Lewis was aware of the canonization and, and um, thought that he would include them so that there would be a Protestant and a Catholic. As I said last week, Lewis was a, a man who, did, who wanted to draw people together in mere Christianity. He wasn't interested so much in fighting the battles of uh, sectarianism. And you, you probably didn't notice because I, I had that long quotation at the end, but he says, even if they have to undergo pains now that he's dead. He's talking about purgatory, which usually is a no-no for a Protestant, right? And no doubt he read more very carefully because he, he wrote a book, uh, I can't remember the exact name, name of it, but it's part of the Cambridge history of English literature, and I think he does the 16th century, so that would be include Thomas More. If you, if you want to pursue that further, it would be in that book. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Doctor. We'll look forward to having you back again.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.